0: my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home, went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall, no quit in me. I remember, you know, there is no quit in me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy.
1: And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great guest today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. So first of all, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for giving us your time. It really means the world to us. So thanks for continuing to support season four of the podcast. It's really been a labor of love for me the past four years. So I appreciate all of you for continuing to listen If you enjoyed today's conversation, we'd appreciate it if you shared it. Share it on social media, whether you're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, wherever it is your social, we are grateful for those of you that continue to share these conversations. Also, text it to a friend, email it to a friend, or even better, when you see a friend who's interested in podcasts, say, hey, I've got a great podcast for you to listen to. Grab their phone and even subscribe them to the show. You wouldn't believe how many times I do that for people Many people don't even listen to podcasts, so uh, feel free to grab mom or dad or your brother or your sister or your friend's podcast and say, hey, I think you want to listen to this, subscribe, uh, and then maybe guide them to your favorite episode. So thank you all for your continued support. It really does mean the world to us. Now to today's guest. Chris Wilson was introduced to me by a mutual friend, and when he told me, Chris's story, I was just blown away and said, yeah, if there's an opportunity to chat with Chris on the podcast, I will 100% take it. And I'm so glad that I did. So he is a serial social entrepreneur. He's a storyteller. He's an artist, which he's going to talk about in this conversation, how much he loves art and is really coming into his own as an artist. He's also a social justice advocate and he's an author. And when I say he's an author, he wrote the book, The Master Plan, which I recently read and, and I absolutely loved it. I can't recommend his book enough. It's a great read. I Read it in about a week, and it's 400 pages. It's a it's a not a short book, uh, but I was riv- I found it riveting. I hung on to every word. It's emotional. It'll take you through highs and lows. It'll make you cringe. Um, but I think the best books and the best stories are ones that elicit emotion. And Chris's story will certainly do that today. He was incarcerated for murder at the age of 17 and he had a life sentence so this conversation is less about the murder and more about what he did after it but we will give you some context into what his life was like as a kid growing up and the tough environment that he was brought into and some of the challenges that existed in his life before that event and also some of the challenges of living in prison and he was there for 16 years before eventually somehow miraculously getting out so You're going to love this conversation with Chris. I think all of us can look inward and think about how we're showing up and think about the people in our lives who maybe need second chances and how we're all imperfect in some way. And to me, Chris's story hits that on the head. And I just find him to be an inspiring, bright, shining star that I'm just fortunate that I got to spend some time with. And I know you're going to love spending some time with him as well. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Chris Wilson. Chris, excited to have you on the podcast. We got connected by Zach Garber. Zach is a mutual friend of ours. I feel like whenever I say Zach's name, I just want to smile. He is, he is, he's such a different type of dude. And Zach, when we first met, we were on a bus and uh, we were on a trip somewhere, and Zach started talking about his podcast. And I said to him, "Well, I have a podcast." And then he started talking about you, and he started telling nice. okay. he started telling your story and. For those that don't know Zach, uh, Zach's probably 30 years old. He is ridiculously smart, and yes. his recall is unbelievable. So when he tells a story about you, Chris, he goes into every single detail, including your biceps and every <laughs> every nuance of, of Chris Zach talks about. So shout out to Zach for connecting us. He connected us, He connected me with another amazing person, Van. Uh, Brooks, uh, who I had the pleasure of. Yeah,
0: That's my homie. Yeah. And I
1: figured you and Van know each other. So uh, he's one for one as far as connecting people for the podcast. And I-, I know this is two for two because I just finished reading your book. And I have often read books and podcast guests, but I just want to say this off the top and then we'll promote it at the end again. Your book really made me feel alive when I read it. it. It made me cringe. It made me cry. It made me smile. It inspired me for those that are looking for a book that is going to make them think is going to make them think about how they're acting. Uh, I, I just think there's so much nuance and emotion in that book. So I want to just thank you for sharing it because I think it makes me a better human. And I think all of us need inspiration in our life. And your story, which we're going to get, going to get to is certainly one of inspiration and it's real. Like you didn't go yes. back, like there is darkness in this book and um, I appreciate you showing all sides of it and not just the bright side of it. And, and so I just want to thank you for sharing that gift with, with me.
0: I really appreciate it. I put my heart and soul into the book. So um, it felt really good to hear when people um, appreciate reading it. So thank you.
1: Actually, let's start with the book and then we'll go back and get into your upbringing. But the decision to write a book, um, when did that come into uh, clarity for you that that was something that you wanted to do?
0: I was 19 years old and I was in a dark space in my life, but I had made a decision that I wanted to turn my life around and I wrote up a bunch of things that I wanted to do with my life. And then I started thinking about like, what if I wrote a book one day? and told my story um, and hopefully like this book would inspire people. And it it was tricky for me because a lot of the positive things that I wanted to do in my life, I hadn't done them yet. And so I had to write them down and hopefully one day I will be able to tell my story through this book, which I was able to do.
1: One of the things that I was blown away by in your book is you had a line in there where you said, your grandma taught you how to work and your mom taught you how to dream. And yes. I'm thinking, okay, you're 19 years old, and we'll we'll get into some more context here, but you're facing life in in prison, and yes. you're thinking I'm gonna write a book, and people, it's gonna inspire people. Right? Is that is that part of the mom in you that has the ability to dream about that, or what Absolutely. inside you even could think think like that?
0: Absolutely, it was something that my mother instilled in me since I was very little uh, about using my imagination and dreaming, and my grandmother instilled in me a lot, um, the work ethic of just like working really hard. And I just, I'm just the type of person that I just believe like that I could accomplish things. If I work hard. Um, I talk about it in a book, I call it a positive delusion. So I'm kind of deluding myself, um, to believe that I can do it, but it allows me to get up in the morning and study and work hard and, and work towards my goals. And so that was something that I implemented when I was young.
1: I love that positively delusional concept yeah. which you use throughout the book because I think all of us need that. Like We all tend to limit our capacity or our possibilities regardless of where we are. Right. And you need to be a little crazy. You need to be a little yeah. delusional. Absolutely. And, and so when you're delusional in, in in prison, what's the reaction that you're getting from people around you in your environment as you're saying that you're gonna do these big things what what's the response that you're getting from the people in your environment?
0: I mean, it's strange because you know there's a lot of funny looks from my friends, and and sometimes my friends would stop me and say, "Chris, I mean, like homie, like you never going home, so like stop, man, you know." And and it was it was it was uncomfortable at times, and I would say, like, I am going home, and so I need to be ready. I need to study, and. and sometimes like people around me just wasn't supported. They just didn't believe it. And, and it was tough for me. And, and sometimes I would question myself. It's like, well, am I crazy? But at the same time, like I had goals that I had set for myself. So I was getting my hus- I got my high school diploma and I was getting straight A's in college and doing vocational shops. So either way I was making progress and, and improving myself and I started opening up in therapy. And so all these things was technically making me a better person and so i just chose to believe that one day i would be free and so it kept me um focused
1: do you see that inability to be positively delusional outside of the outside of the prison walls and your everyday interactions with people in your community outside your community (laughs) you 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 live in a lot of different spaces as far as who you're interacting with what do you see as far as positively delusional? Maybe you see it in some and not others. Give us a little more insight (laughs) into into what you see there.
0: I do. Unfortunately, I don't see a lot of positively delusional um, individuals in my life. Um, Just because, you know, where I live at in Baltimore city, we're going through um, an insane uh, spike in crime. And, and most folks just have a, a, a view of, of, you know, pessimism is like, you know, I, I I don't think I'll ever make it out of this environment. And it's kind of been like my role since I've been out of prison to try to instill into folks to, um, that positive delusion or just dreaming that they can make it out. But it's also important for them to see people who look like them, who come from where they come from, that has been able to be successful. And I try to spend as much time as possible uh, going to school, sitting down, mentoring folks, and kind of giving them tangible, next steps of things that they can do to really improve their lives that's very important
1: i love what you're talking about because i've had a lot of people on this podcast who uh, have had quote unquote success and they often talk about somebody from their community doing something and they can see it and they can feel it and they can touch it and just that ability to see it like i had a pro basketball player on here who said someone from his community in philadelphia made it to a division one school. And all of a sudden he was like, Oh wait, I can do that. Right, Exactly. Um, And if you don't see that, you don't know it's a possibility. Um, And before we fired up the mic, we were talking about a nonprofit called hoop dreams that I was involved with at a very young age. And a big part of hoop dreams mission was to get kids out of their communities so they could see other communities that they didn't even know existed beyond the, the streets of where you grew up. They they only saw a concrete jungle. They never saw trees. They never saw houses. It, you know, they just saw sort of what that was like for you. I want right. to go. I want to go back though, and just give people some insight into your upbringing and what life was like for you as a kid. Because I think if they don't understand that, they can't understand how you might have gotten to where you got to, um, right. and I think how you ended up where you are today. So I think it's all a part of your journey, and it's all part of why you are the person you are today. So give us some insight into your your upbringing.
0: Sure. So I I grew up in uh, Washington, D.C. during the late 80s, early 90s. And this was around the time the crack epidemic was sweeping through the city. A lot of gun violence, a lot of drug activity. And I started losing um, friends every couple of months to gun violence Um, the police became more aggressive in our communities, more militarized. Like they would come through maybe two days out of the week kicking in doors and, or if they saw us, they would just pat us down, take our IDs. Um, it was all kinds of stuff like that. And it was confusing for me because on the weekends I would stay with my mother who lived outside of DC and Prince George's County. And it was a mixed race neighborhood. It was just different. And Monday through Friday, I had to go back in, go through school and stuff. And it was it was essentially a war zone. At a certain point, the National Guard had to come in. There was tanks. There was helicopters. And there were still homicides um, happening um, in my community. And then eventually, um, my brother was shot. My cousin was killed. And then people came after me one day. And I ended up taking a person's life. And I was charged as an adult. I was 17. And I was found guilty and sentenced to natural life in prison,
1: and I think the other part of your story is uh, also witnessing your mom, you know, yeah, going through all kinds of stuff, including a rape, right um you know, seeing right. a physical abuse, getting physically right. abused. um, a lot of trauma also as part of right. bringing as well
0: that's something honestly, that even today, I go to therapy today once a week. Um, but as a child, I was a mama's word. Loved my mom to death. My mother couldn't go anywhere or do anything. I was just right there. I just loved her that much. And to watch her be sexually violated in front of me and not be able to help her, like I was attacked too. And I just couldn't help my mother. I, I knew there was a gun in the house that I could have probably got up if I had the strength to run and get it. I just It just wasn't in me to do that to another person. And... It was conf- it was really painful to me when i tried to take my mom to the hospital and we ended up at the police station and the way they treated my mother like it was her fault because you know she was dating this police officer but she didn't want to date him anymore and so she he started stalking our family and the way they treat i used to want to be a police officer and the way they treated her it just changed my perception towards um, police officers and the way my mother um struggled to like she never worked again she fell into a depression And we lost everything. And, you know, it was very difficult for me because at a certain point, my mother just turned against me. And it took me years and years of therapy to really understand that hurt people hurt people. And so my mom just like turned on me. It was just, I was losing friends in a neighborhood and it just pushed me into a dark space where I felt like if my mother doesn't love me, you know, and my friends are dying every every other month, like, what is the point? you know, and I just lost hope and I lost hope in myself. And then, you know, all this anger and pain was just bottled up inside me. And then two uh, men come after me and I just responded. And that's how I ended up taking a person's life.
1: I had on a guy named uh, Dr. Mark Golston, who is a suicide expert. And he talked about how most people, and I know suicide is part of your story as well, as far as people around you and, and mental health. Um, but he talked about when people become suicidal, they they get to a place of despair, and yeah. that was the word he used was despair. Uh, and as I'm hearing you talk, I'm hearing despair. Like,
0: yeah, it's a, it's a part in, in in my life where I started self-cutting, and I didn't know at the time why I was doing it. But like, as you know, years and years of therapy, what I was actually doing is like the psychological trauma that I had experienced. It would, it would come back to me in my dreams. It would come back to me in the middle of the day. And it was so painful for me that I felt like me actually cutting into my skin was was lesser of a pain than the psychological pain. And I just started doing it. And, you know, um, I had got put on medication, which had made it worse. And I started having suicidal thoughts. And so I just was in a really, really bad space. And I don't. Looking back on it, I just wasn't really getting the therapy and, and the counseling that I felt like I needed at the time. And most children, unfortunately, that grew up in communities like this, um, experience the same things that I went through. And there's no treatment. There's no people like really like talking about it. The schools are are not uh, funded or, or have the proper resources to address this. And then these hurt these children that are hurt that go through all this trauma, who eventually maybe do something to someone, society calls them a monster, but they forget about all the things that they've been through or how many times our society has failed our children.
1: How do you feel or what do you think about nature versus nurture?
0: I have to I have this conversation uh, with my friends um often. Um, and it's kind of like the whole thing about like grit. How does someone like to develop it? Um I don't claim to like have like the, the answer for it. I think nurture Nurturing is definitely, like, important, but, you know, adversity also plays a role um, in developing, like, resilience and and how you keep getting back up. I've been through a lot of stuff um, that, you know, I have every excuse to be messed up, but for some reason, I just continue to get back up. And I I credit that with, you know, things that my mother instilled into me, um, therapy, but also I surround myself with positive people that, when I have moments of doubt, um, that they encourage me or they lift me back up.
1: Because even in jail, you were able to find people and mentors, and right. you surrounded yourself with people that that were helpful. Um, right. Before Before we move on to the the jail, uh, post traumatic stress disorder, depression, suicide, bipolar. You talk about your mom being bipolar. Yeah. Mental health. You, you're mentioning therapy and that you still go to therapy give me some insight into how you think about mental health and therapy and what has been helpful for you and and what hasn't been helpful for you.
0: Right. So there was a point um, that I write about in my book where, you know, I went like maybe two years without opening up in therapy. And I just felt like all the things that I saw and been through that people just wouldn't relate to them. And it was just so painful. It was hard to talk about stuff that I I witnessed or experienced. And once I started opening up, I realized, and then other people in my group setting started opening up, I realized that we all had been through like similar stuff. And it was cathartic for me just to even talk about it, to get it off my chest. And then it allowed me to be more introspective and learn more things about myself. And then like going forward, I just found it helpful to go to therapy to have someone to talk to or to bounce ideas off of. Um, And so that's just something like that I continue to do. And unfortunately, in the African-American community, it's still a stigma of, like, that you're broken or, you know, that something's wrong with you because you go to therapy or you have, like, this this mental health illness. And so I feel it's important to talk about it because I feel like it's a strength to, to, to talk about my vulnerable side or stuff that I've been through. Because, like, I want to be just like everyone else. Like, I want to live a, live a, a honest life, a law-abiding citizen. You know, I want a family. And, you know, things that I've been through, like, requires, like, therapy and requires me to um, figure out positive ways how to cope and get through my life. And that's just the reality of, like, living in America as a black man.
1: I love that you use the word vulnerability. Uh, Brene Brown's work on vulnerability, she has a Netflix special, she's written Yeah, best-selling books. And for me, what's a game changer about Brene's work is it's actually great for men. And right. um, the idea, when you ask men if you want, do you consider yourself to be courageous? Almost every man would say, yeah. Like I want to yeah, be a right. courageous guy. Like, you know, the, the tough guys that we look at are courageous. But when we say vulnerable, we take a step back from that. And we're taught, no, that's not where we need to go as men. And I love how you're talking about vulnerability being a strength because right. to me that it, she, she links courage and vulnerability and sort of aligns the two and says you can't be vulnerable you can't be courageous without being vulnerable
0: and so it's
1: it's neat to hear you talk about that I'm also curious about toughness you have been around all kinds of different people that would describe themselves as tough I'm curious what's your definition if you were to define toughness where would you go to
0: uh that's interesting interesting question um I think like I guess it depends. And honestly, like the age of a person of of how they would define it. But like I would define toughness as, you know, a person that's just resilient, that can that can get back up, that can. You know, that's how I look at it, just like someone that can get back up, someone that's like determined um, to try different things. Um, But that being said, my, my definition of it when I was younger it was like everyone. We were all striving to be tough, but really, in my community, it was just a defense mechanism. Everyone was pretending like to be tough, or you know, we wanted to get a gun just as a defense mechanism, so one, no one would bother us. But really, like a lot of these tough, tough, so-called tough guys in my community were all actually people walking around that were hurt, that had bottled up stuff um, that they hadn't addressed. And so, me knowing that now, and as a, um, as a forty-one-year-old man um allows me to interact better when I'm mentoring or if I'm doing like some gang mediation like with young folks. I get it. And it's like, all right, I know you're coming off as a tough this tough guy, but I really know it's deep down inside that you're hurting. You probably got a family member that's struggling with drugs. Maybe your dad wasn't in your life, unfortunately. And so I'm very sensitive when I interact with people now. And so I don't know. I I don't view the same the toughness, the persona. It just doesn't resonate the same with me. I kind of see through it.
1: It's interesting. Another piece to your story is survival, like yeah. choosing survival at different points, uh, whether it's being in jail and not stepping in when maybe some stuff was about to go down right. or being uh, there. There's a big part of Chris's story where he wants to get a Corvette. Uh, he gets a Corvette when he's out of jail and then realizes, I think you got pulled over like 26 times when you have a Corvette and you're a black man in Baltimore driving around in the Corvette. And it's a sad state that that's actually a thing, but it is a thing. And so your decision (laughs) to actually say, you know what, I'm going to get rid of the Corvette, even though it's. Right. It's a symbol for you of status to say, hey, I, I I can't get arrested again. And so there's times in your life where toughness for you were decisions right. based on survival rather than even when maybe someone else would say, Well, you're not being tough for you, you were probably right. being tough because it was what needed to happen. It was just a survival.
0: Right. It's something when I when I'm mentoring a lot of guys, like since I've been home um eight years now, there have been other um, I call them like other Chris's. People who have read my story, people who have been in prison got into college and like, you know, doing their thing and and turning their lives around. And one of the things I I talk to um, these young men and women about is the ability to be coachable. And what that means is like, I've always been coachable to the point where I I have my master plan and things that I'm, I'm setting out to do, but I need to also understand that I don't know how to. I'm not an expert at any of these things, and there may be people in my life who would give me advice or whatever. I need to be willing to listen to it. And so with the car, I was I was pissed off about the Corvette, and it's like, well, people, the same people were saying, well, you can't drive a Corvette, and I was like, but you got a nice car, and it was like, but you can't, and just like you're black, and Baltimore is just not the right thing. And think about the bigger picture. And so I had to get rid of my car, but I listened to the advice, and, and it wasn't like you know. I wasn't breaking a law. I still never got a, tra- a traffic ticket. And it's just like in life, you got to make tough decisions for like the greater good. And so that's something that like, I, I just remember and I think about that's important.
1: You mentioned mentorship. What makes a great mentor?
0: I think a, a good mentor is someone, in my opinion, who has been there, done it, um, willing to share wisdom, also willing to listen uh, also willing to allow you as as the mentee to grow with the mentor. I have mentors in my life who give me advice all the time, and then it's things that they struggle with they they include me into those conversations, which I'm really appreciative of. Um, I think it's one of the most important things for anyone who wants to turn your life around or wants to move in a positive direction. you got to have positive people in your life that have been there and done it. Um, that's willing uh, to share the wisdom with you. And I always say, like, a lot of these people are busy and they don't have time. So you often got to trick them into becoming your mentor. So I say stuff like, take this person out to lunch once a month or take them out for coffee and just pick their brain or whatever. Maybe they're expert in some space and, like, they become your mentors. Create your own personal board of advisors, like five people that are experts in some area and they secretly become, like, your mentors, I think I love, that's critical.
1: I love that because I think it's so weird. if People are like, "Oh, I want you to be my mentor." I was like, well, "What do you? You're what like, does that yeah, even mean?" Right. No, right. It's 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 a relationship that gets built, and I love how you just sort of say, hey, "Just say, I want to take you out to lunch," and then that's when they become a mentor. Back right. to back to the master plan. So the book is called the master plan, uh, and you really talk about the master plan and also having an end game in the book. Right. So. <coughs> Can you, can you go to that first time where you start writing the master plan and you start putting pen to paper <coughs> and what that's like yeah. for you to, to start outlining that? Yes.
0: Yeah. So, so there was a point, uh, like I guess I was two years in the prison and had a life sentence. And I was just looking around in, in, inside of the prison. There's people getting tattoos, people doing push-ups, people arguing. And I met this young guy who also had life, who was teaching himself computer programming and i started talking to him and he said that you know he had his plan he said he was gonna start a software company He was gonna get out of prison one day buy his dream car he was gonna make millions of dollars and at first i laughed at him because i was like you don't have a computer how are you gonna pull this off but he was just focused and it motivated me so i locked myself into my cell and one of the questions that i asked myself was what is my end game what is, who do i want to become what are people going to say about me when, I, when I'm gone? And I knew in my heart that I was a good person. And I knew I was always very entrepreneurial. So I was like, I want people to, you know, to say like, you know, he was a, a good businessman. I didn't know what social entrepreneurship meant back then. I don't think that the term existed. But I wanted to create a business that helped people or better my environment. I wanted to travel around the world. It was just things that I wanted to do. And, and most importantly, I wanted to be free again to go back into the communities like the ones I grew up in and be that positive example um, and, and take time to sit down with folks like my uncle and my grandmother, they would say like, you know, you need to get a job or you could you need to start your own business. But like no one ever sat down with me to show me how to do those things or how to do a resume. And so prison gave me a lot of time to think about that and the person I want to become. And so I figured if, if I was going to be this this entrepreneur with financial independence that could travel the world, They had a black Corvette convertible. Um, I wanted to figure out ways how I could give back. And so once I envisioned that person, my end game and who I would be, I started working backwards. And it was like, okay, I need subscriptions to business journals and I need to focus in school. I need to open up in therapy. And I just figured out all the little things that could help me bring my bigger vision um, into fruition.
1: It also seemed like there was a lot of failure. There were a lot of setbacks yeah. that you're not going to get out. You're not going to get out. And it seemed like there was a moment where you shifted from being externally focused to say, when I get out to internally focused." is like, Hey, why don't I just do the best I can with what right. I got while I'm in here? Not losing sight of the dream and the goal, but the right. shift of a focus to the process of, you know, what can I do with what I've got right here? Walk right. us through that, that mindset shift between being more externally focused right. and more internally focused.
0: Right. I mean, so, you know, I, it was times where, you know, I was focused for two, three years. And then I would put in for like a request for modification sentence and I would be denied. Uh, I would do it again, denied. And like years would go by. And at a certain point, it was a decade. I had been in prison, never got any trouble, straight A student, still working. And I'm seeing people get out of prison, come back, get out of prison. And I would have moments of doubt, like maybe, maybe I won't, I won't get out. Or whatever, but I had people around me that kept pushing me. Even bad people, people that were doing bad stuff, would say, "Hey, why don't you just go down the hall while we do this here?" Because like you're a good dude, you getting out one day. And people would like protect me. But but quite honestly, like what really did it is when one of my mentors looked at me and said, "Imagine if you started helping all the people around you and helping them like you know create their own master plan and do stuff." And I was resistant at first, and I said, "I don't know these people." Like these people getting high, they stabbing people, they doing stuff. And he says, but you you were once in that space. Like imagine if you like helped them, if you let them out. And so it was uncomfortable. So I started like helping other people and and just like doing everything I could. And then the blessings just started coming back to me tenfold. And then I got a court date. I got my sentence reduced. And it was something that, that still sticks with me to the day. It's like, you know, God gave me an opportunity to get out. Um, but it wasn't just for me to just think about myself or just like make a bunch of money or, or whatever. Like I'm out here. I got to pay it forward. So there's other Chris's or Christine's in the world. I got to do everything I can um, to support them. And so that's what gets me out of bed every day um, today.
1: I look at it in two ways. One is servant leadership, being in service to other people. Absolutely. Leadership is influence. So how are we influencing people? Are we influencing them in service of them or are we influencing them in service to ourselves? And so you shifted from being just in service to yourself to really influencing others in a, in a way you were leading by example in the beginning, like you're just doing your thing, but now it's like, no, I'm actually going to be in service to others because I know sort of how I need to show up. And then the other piece that, look, there's no analogy to living (coughs) in jail compared to living anywhere else in the, you know, in the free world. So it's not apples to apples, but all of us do have environments that we're around that, are positive or negative and there are elements that are good or bad. And it's up to us to try to figure out how do we work from the inside to the outside. And you made a shift, it seemed like, to say, all right, I can't control whether I'm going to get out or not, but I'm going to keep trying and doing everything I can. Like this environment is not ideal, but I'm going to keep showing up from the inside to the outside. And I think that's a message for all of us to understand that there is going to be adversity that you face in your life. If you live long enough, it doesn't matter where right. you're from, it doesn't matter what your skin color is. Certainly where we're from and our skin color and those things can lead to more adversity But um, and economics, but no one is immune to mental health. No one is immune to adversity. And for all of us to constantly be thinking about, and myself included, how can I work from the inside out to influence the world in a positive manner? I think that's right. universal regardless of where you're at and what your situation is right now.
0: Yeah, I agree with that
1: 100%. There's a time that I'm curious about for yourself. You went to solitary confinement for yeah. a while. And I'd love to hear what it's like to be in that space compared to what it's like when you step foot out of that prison. and you, you know right. I think there's a moment where you're looking at your hands and you're just sort of taking in that moment. so I'd love to hear not love to, but I'd be curious about the contrast between being alone in solitary confinement and being out in sort of somewhat of a free situation outside the walls of the prison. Right.
0: Sure. I mean, there were a couple um, instances where I, I spent um, long periods of time in solitary confinement in prison and to be honest with you, it's one of the it's one of the toughest um, things I have ever had to experience. And you, quite honestly, you kind of go crazy a little bit. And just like the the absence of of human contact or, or losing track of of time, and it just was very painful for me. I was just trying to figure out ways to remind myself that I was still alive. or like laying on the floor to catch a, a cool breeze that would come from under the door or just like screaming through like the crack of the door to just try to like hear someone or any kind of like sound. And after a while you kind of just, you get comfortable with, with the, the silence and, and the darkness and you just go into a different space. And like, now that I know that like, after like 14 days, like your brain starts to uh, entropy and it, it just messes you up. And, and quite honestly, like I, I still advocate against solitary confinement, um, today is torture. And it's something that like tax ban citizens, their money, like what, that's what we're paying like to do to people, especially the children. And so it's very, very difficult for me. Um, but the, the flip side is being able to come out of that environment to being able to be released from prison after, you know, 16 and a half years and experience solitary confinement and all kinds of oppression. Um, I can't even describe it in words how beautiful, It is. I mean, it's the little things, even waking up this morning and hearing the birds sing, or just like being in a house that I own is just so precious. Uh, But it also reminds me of just how many people are subjected. Like even today there's between 80,000 and 90,000 men, women, and children that are subjected to solitary confinement. And it doesn't make us safer. It doesn't help them, doesn't help anyone. And so that's just something that's, it's a terrible thing that we do in this country.
1: If you go into prison reform, it sounds like that's one thing that you think should be changed. What are the other tangible aspects that, from your perspective, we should be doing <coughs> differently as it relates right. to treating uh, people that are in prison?
0: Something that's very, very critical um, to prison um, reform is education. And so there, there's a push now um, throughout prisons in the United States of limiting um, books for, for um, prisoners to get to read it could be the sources and dictionaries and stuff and all kinds of studies suggest that even a little bit of education reduces recidivism and so I'm a big a big advocate for uh, supporting uh, prisoners for education vocational shops college and you know people against it will say well my you know my children had to like you know, work and and pay for college, why should they get like a free education? And I understand that, but I encourage people to think about the children where society has failed throughout their life. All kinds of stuff that they didn't get. And yeah, if they committed a crime, they should be punished by being away from society. But like let's give them the things that we we drop the ball on ahead of time and allow them to be productive citizens when they come out. And this is this is economically good. This allows them to reacclimate to society. And this is how I did it. Like when I started uh, going to college, it just opened my mind to a bigger world. It built up more confidence in me. And when I was home, I was able to get a job. I was able to be promoted. It's just an important component of, of people reacclimating back into society. And so I don't understand how um, people aren't embracing prison education the way they should
1: not an expert in any of this, but it seems like there are like opposite sides here, which is like one side says you need to punish them and right. they need to serve the consequences for their actions. And you even sort of talk about that in the book. And then the other side that's saying, Hey, our job is to try to make them better. Like our job right. is to try to make them better humans. And right. that push pull seems to be at the core of some of the challenges. Um And and going back to that idea of toughness is like, well, what is being tough on somebody? Um, right. And, and, you know, I, I think it was interesting because there were times where being tough on some of those guys inside would have been to sit them down and make them read a book. Like that would have been really yeah. tough for them. Um, and it would have potentially helped them. Um, and I, Gandhi's quote of an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind is something that's just stuck with me from the time I watched his documentary in middle school. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I think your story is, is a sort of testament to that. It's like, um, there's no doubt that you now feel for the victim's family. Um, absolutely. But, you know, causing you to also be murdered. I I just don't know what the, what that will do for making society a better place.
0: Right. I actually had a conversation, um, with the family, um, of my victim, uh, before my book went to publication. And one of the things that they asked me was like, well, why do you feel like you need to write this book or tell your story? Right, why? Like they were were upset. And what I explained to them, and and coincidentally, like this, this family members I was talking to were community organizers in a very tough neighborhood in DC. And what I said to them was, you know, every morning I wake up and cut the news on, I'm getting sick and tired of seeing people who look like us that are being killed and i said i feel like my story what i've been able to accomplish so far i feel like it genuinely resonates with certain people that are in the streets or that want to turn their lives around and i just wanted to stop and so anything i can do like to reach folks to raise a level of consciousness for people who are supporting or want to make a difference and other people's lives, I want to, like, um, support them by educating them to, like, my plight and things that I've been through. But, like, that's what this is about. And and the family gave me the blessings. It was like, we we understand. And, like, that's what I want to do. I, wa- I don't want anyone to go through what I went through. I want people who maybe they're upset with their job and they working, you know, somewhere and they want to be a bird watcher and like, Brazil and or whatever. I want them to write up a plan and figure out, like, how to do it. Like, I, I genuinely want to make the world a little better than it was yesterday.
1: And part of what you talk about throughout the book is that you need jobs. And you sort of mentioned, hey, education's important. Uh, Prison reform's important. You know, there's all these things that people are passionate about. But for you, you really are are focused on jobs. That's what can reduce poverty. And so talk about what you've done (laughs) to try to create jobs. You've said during this conversation, you have an entrepreneurial spirit. A lot of that came right. from your mother. what do you what have you done to try to create more jobs for people right. that that are looking for jobs?
0: Right. so since since I've been, I've been home eight years, um, started uh, two companies. First company was a furniture restoration company where I hired about um, five five to seven um, individuals from the community. But I was frustrated because I was working as a workforce development um, director. And my job was to help people get jobs. And it was difficult. I couldn't uh, employ more people for the company. So I started another company, um, construction contracting company. And we grew to about 23 employees. But still, it was hundreds and hundreds of people f- um, not being able to be employed. And it's just something that, that really frustrated me. And so I started um, helping and working with folks and connecting them to jobs um, through my relationships. And as of uh, last Sunday, I've helped 281 people in Baltimore City get jobs, and less than 10 of those jobs is minimum wage jobs. And so I just try to do everything I can. And, you know, I, I see the potential in people, just the way folks saw potential in me when I was younger. And, and sometimes people are not ready. Like, I, I, I got a, a real good BS detector. If I see someone that's like, they got one foot in the game, one foot, like, out of it or whatever, I can, I can notice that and say, you're not ready. Like, I can't work with you. And so I just try to do all I can, but, you know, honestly, it's still not enough. It's just not enough.
1: What What do we need to do?
0: We need stronger government leadership. We need, we need to form some kind of private government, like partnerships. Uh, but like, I, honestly, like, this is my, my personal opinion. I think like this, the structural racism is, is live and well um, in a lot of these institutions and, and government institutions that, um, they're just not willing to give like our people a shot. I mean, that's unfortunate.
1: As somebody who's not African-American, what, what do you recommend that people that don't look like you do to try to make a difference in those communities or it's not just those communities in, and I would say, you know, Hispanic communities (coughs) or low income communities, whatever, whatever we need to do to try to just make this (coughs) country a higher functioning country.
0: Right. So I would say, um, just being brought up to speed, being educated on on the state of affairs, what's going on. Um, Also knowing who our representatives are and and holding them accountable. Um, And I guess the other thing is just like showing up. Like a lot of people, I write about this too, a lot of people who just like saw potential in me, uh, who invested in my companies, they didn't look like me, you know, and they just took the time. And so I encourage people that like, see see potential in someone and maybe you take a Sunday and you sit down with that individual and, and share some wisdom with them and kind of give them that push, um, you'll be surprised how far that can go. Awesome.
1: Entrepreneurship, it didn't just start when you got out of jail, of prison. You started your entrepreneurship journey while you were in there. Talk about right. the photo business and <laughs> And some some of the stuff you did, and look, that was that got the biggest smile that you've given me actually. So Chris is ear to ear talking about the photo business while in prison. Um, So talk about that experience and what that was like for you.
0: Right. So my my mentor um, and cell buddy at the time, um, Stephen, we would uh, read trade journals of like new technology before it came out, and we had um, saw this trade journal and it was digital cameras, and we had Polaroid cameras back then. And I was like, so we can print our own uh, photographs? And he was like, yeah. And so we we put together a proposal to propose to the institution to invest in digital cameras. And we started this business structure where we would hire folks. We would um, sell picture tickets on commissary. And then the money that we would raise would go into an inmate welfare fund account where we can spend that money on things that benefited the inmate population. And it was, you know, it was exciting for us because, you know, you read a lot about business and this was the first opportunity to actually launch a business. And surprisingly, the institution um, let us start it. And I would look at my numbers. I would do uh, business and Everything that I had learned about, it was teaching me like how to run a legitimate company. And that was something that I was just super excited about. And we were just like making tons of money, tons of money. It didn't end well, right? Because. They, um, they, they seized our, uh, our money and used it to buy security cameras. But the point was I was able to think up something, write it up, and build it and generate revenue. So I knew that once I was set free, that I had the skill sets to run a legitimate business.
1: And also while you're in jail, you journaled. What, what went into that? Why did you decide to do that? <clears throat> uh, how'd you get started?
0: So I, I, I think I've been journaling since I was 10. Um, I think it's just like, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm somewhat of a loner and I'm always like, you know, lost in my thoughts and I just found it, um, cathartic or just like, just helpful for me just to write. And I still do it to this day. Like I I journal every single day and it's just, it's just healthy for me. I like to get stuff out. And then sometimes I go back and reflect. Um, it's just, it's just something that's healthy for me. It also allowed me to write a book because I had a lot of material um, about my life.
1: Yeah. And talk about the process of writing a book and what that was like for you.
0: So it's very tough. Um I had to relive a lot of um stuff that I experienced growing up. I mean, down to like walking down alleys and explaining like where my friends were laying, um, going to talk to my teachers. I mean, I learned a lot about myself too, um, producing a book. It was very, very tough um to do. But Um, I'm biased because it's my book, but I put my heart and soul into it. And I I truly believe that it's my life's work.
1: And the master plan, where do you think you'd be today if you hadn't really sat down and captured that master plan?
0: I would still be in prison. Still be in prison. I'm pretty sure that, I mean, the master plan gave me structure. Every morning that I woke up, I could look at my plan and see what I was working towards. I could check stuff off. It gave me a sense of accomplishment. It built up my confidence. Um, I mean, I I swear by it now. It's just something like that's how I operate. I have a master plan, and every day I'm just working towards like my end game. Where are you on on the master plan? So I pretty much got like about ninety eight percent of it um complete. Um, I was able to start my foundation, which I didn't plan to do, um, Chris Wilson Foundation, and then I started um, painting three years ago, and so I added some some artistic goals um for for uh, on the master plan. And so, and that's been like wonderful, like it's allowed me to buy a new house and pay off my personal and business debt. And I've been traveling the world and I just love art, looking at it and just learning and telling stories. And so now I just want to use my art, use my voice um, as a tool or as a weapon to, to advocate for, my, for the men and women um, that's been impacted by the criminal justice system. I feel like that's my purpose.
1: How often are you updating your master plan?
0: Uh, I'm I'm looking at it every day, but I would say maybe like once a month I'm tweaking something or maybe taking some stuff off. And then there's some things on there that I haven't like completed. Like I put on there, um, go skydiving. But my publisher was like, how about you risk your life after the book tour or (laughs) stuff like that? So there's some things I got to get to like later in life, but um, it just gives me uh, a more meaningful life knowing that every morning I wake up, I got stuff to work towards. That's awesome.
1: And the foundation, talk a little bit about what you guys do and uh, the purpose of it and the mission and all that good stuff.
0: So um, I started Chris Wilson Foundation um, about 17 months ago. And I just started thinking about like how I was able to get through school or like how I was supported by individuals in life. And I wanted to pay it forward. And these same individuals, when he helped me, I was like, you know, I'll pay you back. And he says, nope, you do it for someone else. And it's no better feeling to meet someone or, you know, see someone that's like working to better themselves and just coming in and just giving them that extra like push and supporting them, whether that's financial. So we support um, people, financial literacy, um, prison education programs, um, art programs. And so um, I'm just happy to be a part of doing something um, positive
1: one thing I like about you is you take action and you talk about doing the work throughout the book. Hey, you gotta, you you can't just talk about it. You got to go do the work. And there's a couple of areas where you really did the work. You you earned a full scholarship to college. Once you were out of prison, you speak multiple languages. I don't know where you're at with your Mandarin, but uh, Italian and Spanish. Um, Talk about doing the work and, um, and and putting yourself out there and asking for things and, I think right. pride often holds people back from taking right. the first step. So just talk about right. all that.
0: Right. So, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. It's one of those things that, like, if I could go back and talk to my younger self, um, putting pride to a side and just asking folks for help. I remember when I was trying to get my high school diploma and I had problems with math and I knew there were, like, some some folks that were super smart and, you know, it was just hard to say, hey, can you teach me the quadratic equation or, and just stuff like that and just like reaching out but then like you know I gotta probably credit my grandmother for this work ethic just like getting up working and doing it, it's just something I'm so glad she instilled that into me because that also builds confidence whether it's studying a language and you get up to like 60 words that you learn and that confidence that it gives yourself it, it allows you to push push further and i you know like as far as like you know, entrepreneurship and just like working. And work. I like making money too, by the way. So it feels really good to get that big check or that direct deposit. And it just makes you want to just like work harder. And, you know, I know life's not fair, but, you know, having a good uh, work ethic can really like take you far in life.
1: Yeah, I think pride has two sides to it. There's a good side to pride where we're proud to be from the neighborhood we're from or proud to represent right. people or religion or whatever it might be. And then the other side of pride can get in the way of you, as you said, asking for help and getting right. better and improving. So I think it's something that all of us need to be aware of and manage. Yeah, it's like, which side of that pride coin are we on right now? Um, and being willing to be vulnerable when we're in that side that says, oh, I'm too proud to get help or what have you. Um, back to asking and, and putting yourself out there. So you, you walk up to the dean uh, at right, University right. of Baltimore and, and say, hey, I'm working my tail off here, but I can't afford this. Right. Um, what went into that decision? Because that also sounded like a moment that really changed the trajectory of your career in a lot of ways. The the willingness right. to go and ask for that, and then some of the stuff that transpired as a result of that, right. uh, trickled down. So talk about that decision to to ask for something, and and not just ask for a little bit to ask for a
0: lot. Right. So it, it, I guess it took years to build up like that type of confidence, and it's like people don't like hearing no. But I've been here and no all my life. And so the way I looked at it is like, it's either yes or no. And that was part of it. But the other part of it was, as I started working um, on, and bettering myself over the years, I started to see the true value of myself. And I'm like this now. Like, uh, I maybe included this in the books. So I, I like to demand my worth in all aspects of my life. Um, if I'm not happy with the relationship, like, then, then I'm going to get out of it. Um, If it's stuff that I feel like I deserve, I'm going to just ask for it. And and you'll be surprised, you know, just asking for it. And like what I said to the team was it wasn't just like, oh, just give it to me. I explained. I said, well, I'm working in my community. Uh, I'm a leader in my community and I'm hiring folks. Uh, I'm working really hard at school and I feel like the school should invest in me. And I'm a good investment. And, and I feel like I shouldn't have to pay for anything. And they said, yes. I mean, I can't really explain like why they did, but they did, and I'm and I'm thankful for it. And I think, you know, I think you know, I was a good investment.
1: It's such a cool way to look at it. Is I'm not looking for a handout. You're going to invest in me, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pay you back tenfold. Which you end up helping them do. They they get a lot of donors and uh, money that goes to the school. And I'm yes. sure even today, your book is going to put them more on the map than it was before. Um, yep. And so I think it's a cool way to look at it from somebody if if we're struggling when we're asking for help not asking for help because we're necess- we're not necessarily a victim we're asking for help because we know we believe in ourselves and we know right. that if we get the opportunity we're going to pay them back tenfold
0: That's exactly right.
1: That's exactly really cool. Right. You mentioned wanting to have a family and and still aspiring to start your own family. Your family right. dynamics are are very complicated. Uh, you talk about your brother and Uh, you talk about your mom who's since passed, You talk about your dad who's, who's deceased. Uh, you talk about your son, um, talk about where you are with your family. You talk about your sister, talk about where you are with your family today.
0: So, so unfortunately, uh, my family and I have kind of grown apart because of uh, my prison experience. Um, we're still in touch here and there, but I kind of developed my own, um, family, um, here in Baltimore, uh, and, and in New York. And, you know, like, we're not biologically, like, related, but, like, I do, I can't say that I have a sense of, like, what family's like. Like, I spend my holidays, like, with my friends. Uh, we travel together. And, you know, things not always going to be perfect in life. So, when it, you know, sometimes it's tough on the holidays when you see, like, Thanksgiving and people getting together with their actual family, which isn't the case in my life. But, you know, I make do with what I have.
1: and. From a mindset standpoint, you are a speaker, you paint, you're an artist, you're an entrepreneur. Walk me through your mindset for each of those. What are you? What's your mindset like when you're painting? What's your mindset like when you're speaking? What's your mindset like when you're leading? Um, right. Give us some insight into your, your performance mindset.
0: So I kind of consider myself uh, a compulsive creator. I love to create, sketch, um, but really, um, I think we talked about this um, earlier, I feel compelled to be um, of service to others. And everything that I write about, uh, whether it's an article or my book or what I'm painting about, it's usually being, a, a amplifying the voice for a group of people or some kind of issue. I just feel like that's my calling, what I am meant to do when I'm speaking, I'm speaking about some issue or some topic and issuing a call to action of what we need to do. And, I just feel like that's the only way I can live my life is to, is to be of service and, and create and do things in that way.
1: And you mentioned earlier that you start every day looking at your master plan and just go right. Through it. What does a day look like for you? It seems like you got a lot of different things going on. Yeah. Is it a typical day or is every day? <clears throat> every,
0: every day. Um, I try to take Sundays off to um, just like, uh, you know, tune out and, and do some reading and stuff. Um, but every day, is, it, it could be a different city. Like, I'm in New York tomorrow doing an interview. I got a studio in New York. I'm going to do some painting for a couple of hours. Studio visits. I mean, all kinds of things. Mentoring calls um, from folks in prison who I talk to, responding. I get about 100 letters on average a week from, from um, people incarcerated from all over the country. So I spend a lot of time responding to folks. Um, I'm also on a mission to get my book inside of every prison in America. So I've been partnering with a lot of uh, books to prison programs. I've been raising money. I think I raised about 150,000 already. And so I just want to get my book in the hands of folks um, that I feel like will, my story will resonate with. And so, like, that's you know pretty busy day.
1: So raising 150,000 so that you people can give money and buy books for for inmates to then read. Right. Is that How it works.
0: Right. Yeah. So, I part, like, so like two weeks ago, it was um, Constellation Energy brought a few hundred books and then they had their um, management team and employees write um, messages to folks incarcerated, like encouraging messages. And then we we packaged up all the books and then we set them into a few prisons. And so I've been doing stuff like that all over the country. It's 3,000 prisons um, in America and I'm going to try to get the book in, into um, all of them. That's awesome.
1: Where, where, where do you see yourself? I think you said, how old are you, 41?
0: 41, yes.
1: Where do you see yourself at 50?
0: Um, painting like crazy um, and traveling the world and paying it forward.
1: Are you still doing
0: construction? So I'm trying to scale down on construction. I still have the company and still have two employees, but I'm trying to transition out of it. Um, honestly, one of my friends started a contracting company who I used to mentor in prison. So I'm trying to like shift everything over and kind of have them like, just run everything or just do his own thing. Um, but my passion um, will be to continue to move this book, but I just want to make art, honestly.
1: So I'm hearing from you, you got art, you got your foundation, you've got your book and trying to get your book into the, those people's hands. That's the focus right now. And yes. it sounds like in the future, if you can really build on the art um, to, to also do good and, and to also do well for yourself, then that's where you yes. want to
0: be. Yes, right absolutely.
1: What kind of car are you driving now?
0: Black Corvette convertible with nice Rams, the new oh, one, Stingray.
1: You went back. So what? Why? Why go back to the convertible? Go. So for those that don't haven't read it, and I know I'm spoiling. Look, <laughs> go go read his book. I'm spoiling the book for some of you, but um, Chris, it's like the Titanic. Like Chris gets right. out. We 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 know that he got gets out. So you know that. I knew that right. going into it because our buddy Zach Garber told me every detail, and I still love the book. So I don't right. think this is going to spoil the emotion that you're right. gonna feel reading the book but in the book you talk about the you know getting this corvette and the joy you had and then getting rid of it so why go back to it you you said you could get pulled over and you know right. someone could could throw some drugs in your car or plant a gun right. or a knife and uh then you're you're back in jail why why right. why, why get it again so,
0: so i guess the, the main thing was one it was on my master plan so it was something that and it's my dream car i wanted it and as the years passed, I've developed a, a positive relationship uh, with the police department here in Baltimore City, the mayor's office, I mean, everyone all over the city. So at a certain point, they pulled me over so many times, like everyone knows who I am now. I've, I've been paying it forward um, all throughout the city. And so I felt like, you know, I could go back and get this car. And it's a beautiful car. I just didn't feel comfortable. Um in any other car. Like I went and got some cool cars after that, like, you know, convertible Mercedes and everything. And I was like, this is my dream car. It's actually a chapter in my book that's about this car. I deserve it. And so um a couple of months ago, I, I went and, and brought that-, that black Corvette convertible. It haven't been pulled actually haven't been pulled over in a while now, about two years. And why- so why do you think uh, that is? Well, they are- everyone knows who I am now. So they just
1: see the convertible and they're not they're yeah. not messing with you.
0: Right. So I'm friends with a lot of police officers. Um, I do like some community engagement stuff with them and stuff. so the relationship is different now.
1: I don't know if you noticed this. I don't know if you've gone through your book and sort of read it once you published it, (coughs) but I just went through and I noticed you have pictures in the book. You have a picture of, uh, your mom, and she's smiling ear to ear. Yeah. Uh, when she's younger, you have a picture of some of the people that you interacted with in in jail. You have a picture of some of the people that helped you once you were out, and almost uh, well, all of the pictures before you get out, you're not smiling.
0: Right. Is that intentional? That's the, an interesting observation. Well, if there's no picture of me smiling until I, I'm trying to think what age I was. Um. Until
1: the picture with Jane, that's the first picture. Yeah, where you're I think smiling. it
0: was. I think I was 30 or maybe like 32. Just or something in like general,
1: that. you're talking about. You have no
0: in my, in my entire time. life. You could look at um, when I was young in school and, and like, I've never smiled. No pictures. They just don't exist.
1: And and then I, in the book, there are like five pictures outside of, when you're outside of jail, there's a picture with Jane where you're smiling. There's a yes. picture uh, the the last picture in the book, you've got like your hands up, you're kind of smiling. Yeah, with Steve. Yeah. There's a picture with the guys in New York um where you're smiling. There's a picture with your construction crew. There's like three or four other guys and you're smiling. Two of the guys are smiling, one of the guys not. And the only picture after you're out where you're not smiling that I, I flipped through, maybe I missed one, was when you're sitting on your Corvette. And yeah. it was just interesting. I don't know. I mean, you're an artist. I don't know if there was any... Um, meaning behind that where you had the Corvette but you didn't really have your full freedom versus right. when you were in those other times you were able to be your, your right. free self. I was curious if it was intentional or not and if if you have any
0: thoughts on that. That's a, that's a very good observation. So I'm thinking about like that Corvette and when I had it like I was just getting harassed. Like I, I wanted that car but it, w- it was a burden for me. And so that part it just probably reflected on, on my face and so even I was I was doing some construction work that day and even the owner was like that car too flashy and it was you know it was an African-American brother and he was like you know you're drawing too much attention to yourself and I kept getting pulled over and pulled over and and I my feelings was mixed I was like I don't want anyone harassing me but I work really hard this is my dream car why can't I drive it it was just tough for me well, Chris. I'm smiling now though. <laughs> Chris, I was gonna say
1: your smile is, is ear to ear, man. And you got a you got a big smile. And uh, that's also a gift to share with the world. And um, you know, I, I, for me, this has been such an uplifting conversation. While reading your book, it was less hopeful, it was more more despair. Um yeah. and so maybe the next book will be this. I think it probably will be this shining light with a big smile because I think it seems like you're just getting started yeah um, I'm definitely
0: just getting started
1: and when the book ended it kind of ended and I'm like okay what now and so I was excited to, to learn about what you're up to now if people want to learn more about what you're up to uh, social media uh, right. speaking gigs the book where can they find all that good stuff
0: people can go to my website chriswilson.biz dot b-i-z and follow me on Instagram, Chris Wilson Baltimore, or on Facebook, Chris Wilson.
1: Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram intentional underscore performers. And although I don't have nearly as interesting of a story as Chris, uh, we're we're I'm I'm very grateful to be able to bring people like you t- to myself, first of all, and then share Thank them you. with the world. And I'm so excited to get to meet you in person and, and grab a cup of coffee. Chris talks about drinking coffee throughout the book. That's right. So uh we grab. I drink tea, so hopefully you won't judge me for we being- We
0: can do a tea some tea, tea, yeah, I'm I'm a tea guy too.
1: All right, uh, and looking forward to learning more about what you're up to and your art and, and seeing it in galleries all over the world and uh, listening to you speak one day as well. So thanks for being you and, and thanks for sharing with us today.
0: Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. So, so there was a point, uh, I guess I was two years in the prison and had a life sentence. And I was just looking around inside of the prison. There's people getting tattoos, people doing push-ups, people arguing. And I met this young guy who also had life, who was teaching himself computer programming. And I started talking to him and he said that, you know, he had his plan. He said he was gonna start a software company, he was gonna get out of prison one day, buy his dream car, he was gonna make millions of dollars. And at first I laughed at him because I was like, you don't have a computer, how you gonna pull this off? but he was just focused and it motivated me. And so I locked myself into my cell. And one of the questions that I asked myself was, what is my end game? What? Is, who do I want to become? What are people going to say about me when, I, when I'm gone? And I knew in my heart that I was a good person and I knew I was always very entrepreneurial. So I was like, I want people to, you know, to say like, you know, he was a a good businessman. I didn't know what social entrepreneurship meant back then. I don't think that the term existed, but I wanted to create a business that helped people or better my environment. I wanted to travel around the world. It was just things that I wanted to do. And, And most importantly, I wanted to be free again.